Welcome to Grow Your Dental Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Mohammed Ismail. I'm a cloud accounting expert and a business advisor to dental and medical professionals. My firm, Shift Accounting, has helped our clients reach their financial goals. How do we do this? Well, we offer awesome bookkeeping and business consultancy. Our monthly management reports provide valuable financial insights. These insights can help you improve your profitability and get you to your goal faster. Our goal for the Grow Your Dental podcast is to provide you with valuable resources to help you build, manage, and grow your dental practice. I interview experts in a variety of areas. Whether you are just thinking about starting your own practice or you're already well on your way, there's something for everyone here. We wanted to start the podcast off with a bang, so we released the entire full season so you can get started. We'll be back later this year to continue providing you with valuable insights and expert opinion for starting and managing and growing your dental practice. Enjoy the show. We have covered accounting, so now it's time to dig into the legal side of your dental clinic. Today we are talking to Robert Fuchs with McLeod Law here in Calgary about the legal aspects of your clinic. We're going to be covering When is it time to engage a lawyer? The legal side of your lease agreement? How lawyers and accountants work together? The legal setup of your clinic? The risk of purchasing assets versus shares? The importance of employment contracts? So let's get into it. It is time now to welcome our special guest, Robert Fuchs. Robert, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks very much. Uh, well, Robert Fuchs, a lawyer, practicing lawyer here in Calgary, Alberta. Um, I never wanted to be a lawyer. Actually, I <laughs> sort of fell into it serendipitously. I grew up in a small family business. I'm originally from British Columbia. My parents had always encouraged me to have a backup plan, so I ended up uh, getting a science degree in chemistry. and. Oh, wow. uh, uh, moved out to Calgary to pursue a master's in chemistry. I was actually um, an insect sex pheromone chemist for a a short period of time while I was working on chemistry. And at one point, I actually was very interested in going into dentistry. Oh, wow. And uh, I actually got my dental admissions test uh, test package or practice package and read some exams. And and one thing I, I generally like to point out when I do a lot of presentations for dentists is that when I did my chalk carving, I scored a perfect 30. So I was, I was one of only a handful of people in the country at, at the time that got a perfect on their chalk carving. So I, I mentioned that just to try and get a little bit of street cred with the, the dentists I'm talking to. But obviously, I never ended up going into dentistry. I'm When I was finishing up my master's in chemistry, I moved over and started my MBA in venture development again because I really had an interest and a passion for business and how society interacted with business and somewhere along the lines I decided to take a year of law school to get some basic contracts and then ended up running between the two buildings and I graduated with my my law degree in June or July and my MBA in September of October the same year and and then ended up practicing law which is where I am today. Wow, what a yeah. career, eh? <laughs> yeah, and, and it, for me, it was, it was pretty organic and it made sense. And this is one of the reasons why I like 
dentistry and working with dentists. It's a it's an extremely academic and technical profession, yet at the same time, it's very people-focused, and, and it's quite a business. So um, similar to what I do now, that was one of the things, that one of the combinations and aspects that attracted me to dentistry in the first place was that overlap between the technicality of the profession and the elevated uh, academics of the profession with the business side of things. Fantastic. Wow. Uh, so... During the process of setting up uh, or purchasing a clinic, legal services obviously are required. You know, can you give us an example of when a dentist should engage a lawyer? Sure. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think a lawyer should be an advisor and um, someone who guides you through the process. One of the personality traits it's not a challenge it's just a personality trait when I see when I deal with dentists they're obviously highly educated again as I was saying it's a technical aspect um, there's a lot of thirst to know as much as possible and and sometimes quite frankly to be afraid to ask certain questions and so I feel quite strongly that one of my roles is to be an advisor and to advise not only on the legal aspects of the transaction but some of the other aspects letting them know when they should be seeking advice from a tax person, an accountant, an insurance advisor, uh, banking. There's a number of different professionals, and I find that one of our roles as legal counsel, if you're doing a good job, is, is acting as a bit of a conductor and an orchestrator Absolutely. amongst those. Um, and, and, you know, it's, a little, it's more fun than just sitting down and drilling down the contracts as well. <laughs> no, that's uh, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, you, you really bring a, a good point. You know, working with dentists is very interesting because they they, they really work with uh, a big team, right? You know, whether it's the tax accountants, whether it's the lawyers, whether it's, uh, you know, lease negotiation, for example. Um, you know, so, you know, one of the things that, there's, and there's a lot of cross, you know, um, cross work between these different professionals. Absolutely. So can you highlight, for example, when uh, does a lawyer take over in, in a lease negotiation or a review of a lease? Certainly. Um, and, and glad you brought up leases. Uh, definitely one of the more important aspects when working with dentists. And not just at the time they're looking to enter into a lease, but throughout the, the management of that lease relationship. Uh, it's very important when you're halfway through or getting towards the end of the lease term when you're looking to sell or extend uh, to be involved. Uh, more specifically to your question, there's, I could categorize two aspects of the lease. There's sort of the market terms, uh, lease rates, um, what is customary for tenant improvement allowances, uh, availability. Those, if you have a a good lease negotiator or lease advisor, a realtor who specializes in, in leases, that's where they can really lend a lot of support. Where I come in, <clears throat> pardon me, was, is more on the uh, negotiating some of the legal aspects and why demolition clauses are offensive and why you don't want them. What is customary with respect to certain fees and assignment provisions? Um, what you can and can't do within a leased premises. Um, and those change as well over time, uh, which is one of the things that I, I like and enjoy about commercial leases. You can have the same document in front of you today and it will be treated much differently 
five years from now, and it would have been treated and negotiated much differently five years ago. Uh, they're very contextual. Um, but suffice to say, I would say the distinction is primarily on certain market, <clears throat> pardon me, certain market factors, which uh, a lease coach or a realtor would be more in tune with. Absolutely, and this is really important because you know, people think that, hey, you know what, these big long contracts, they're standard, everybody's, you know, signing these contracts, but the reality is not. No, um, and it, people listening can't see me rolling my <laughs> eyes, but, you know, the standard aspect of that actually gets a lot of people in trouble, and they, they're huge documents, they're anywhere from 40, 50, 60 pages, and, and it's not the entire document that can get you in trouble, it's those little things that get slipped in or get overlooked or the dentist tenant is convinced by a, a broker for the landlord or someone that it's not that relevant or important. And those are the things that people like myself that are experienced in leases know what to seek out, find, negotiate out, remove, alter, soften, whatever the case may be, but they need to be addressed. Fantastic. So now we highlighted, you know, the importance of bringing in a lawyer um, to review the actual the legality of the lease. Uh, now let's talk about, you know, when setting up a company. Um, you know, usually w what I've seen is, is you know, the, the dentist would probably start the conversation with their tax accountant, and then uh, a lawyer is also involved in that, um, you know, uh, process. Can, can you? Tell me what, where does the lawyer comes in in setting up the professional corporation? Mm -hmm. uh, ideally, we would be doing it all together. Uh, the, the dentist, the accountant, and the lawyer. If someone comes in to me and they haven't spoken with an accountant yet, my, my go-to is always, who do you have that's helping you on the accounting side? When I look at things uh, with respect to corporate structure and how they're organizing their professional corporation or a holding company mm -hmm. or a family trust is two aspects I focus on are tax, tax accounting and liability. And what I set up from a liability standpoint might not always jive on the tax accounting side. So we have to have that discussion to ensure that when I am setting something up, I'm taking into account the best interests of the client from a tax and accounting standpoint. Awesome. Uh, now, this is a really good uh, segue for legal structure. Uh, a, sing a single dentist usually would set up a professional corporation. In the case of uh, more than one dentist, there are different ways to set up that venture, right? Uh, such as a partnership or shares of uh, ownership in a PC. Now, can you tell me the difference between uh, these setups um, and, and is it an advantage for one over the other? Yeah, um, so uh, differences are if it is joint ownership in a single professional corporation, both the dentists or more than two dentists would be shareholders in that overarching professional corporation. If it is a, an alternative structure, so for example, a cost share or possibly a different type of partnership, then the individual dentists would operate on their own in conjunction with the others. So they could either operate and perform their services on an individual basis, or they could themselves incorporate an individual single-owned professional corporation and then work in partnership um, with the other dentists. 
So we can set it up however we want, but again, that's a great example of why the tax and accounting side is so important because each one of those situations has a much different uh, tax situation and accounting situation and how they're treated. Something else probably worth mentioning is there's uh, a difference between a professional corporation and a regular corporation that people hear about and they get uh, they get exchanged in interpretation quite often. In a regular corporation, um, 123 Alberta, uh, what it, whatever it is, you can have multiple individuals that are shareholders in that corporation and they can have voting rights or non-voting rights or what have you. Um, and there's not a lot of restrictions. In a dental professional corporation, in order to have voting control, you have to be a member of the college. So uh, it makes it, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we don't see these large um, uh, conglomerations of a bunch of lay people or street people owning uh, dental professional corporations. It's slowly changing. The, the laws are changing a little bit, but there's restrictions there. And the other aspect is that a dental professional corporation has to include the names of the dentists within it. And again, there's 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 some exceptions, and it, it's morphing with some of the large uh, dental corps that are coming in and, and aggregating dentists. But it's just a rule worth mentioning, which adds a, a little bit of a level of complexity to things. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think we need to do another episode about you know the changes, yeah, <laughs> in, in the dental structure for sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's really interesting because it's really case by case uh, basis on the how the legal structure should be set up, and obviously it has to tie into, you know, the the overarching tax plan uh, for that for that dentist. So, you know, if we have you know. Um, you know, a scenario, for example, a dentist who's owning or, or uh, buying a, a practice, right? There's multiple ways of buying that practice, you know, whether it's, um, you know, buying the shares or buying the asset of that practice. Can you, uh, you know, elaborate on, you know, the, the pros and cons or, you know, what, 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 how should a dentist navigate this? Sure. Um, <laughs> I'm going to refer, <laughs> refer back that it's generally accounting driven. Um, but there are some liability differences. So what you're talking about is you can purchase assets, uh, you can purchase shares, and, and you can also do hybrid transactions where it's a combination of an asset purchase and a share purchase. And obviously there's the sale component on the other side. In an asset transaction, you are buying assets from the vendor company. So it would be the vendor PC generally that is selling assets to you. When you purchase assets, all you are purchasing are the assets. Um, there are some tax benefits in doing that in that you can, you can write up the value of certain assets and depreciate them and write that off against your income. The other benefit from a liability standpoint is when you're buying assets, you're, again, you're just buying those. You're not buying all the other skeletons in the closet, as we like to say, of the company. We contrast that with purchasing shares. When you purchase shares in a dental professional corporation, you are essentially purchasing the entire company. So the company owns the assets, which you could have bought separately, but if you're purchasing the shares, you get everything, uh, including all the liabilities. So if that professional corporation has tax liabilities, employee liabilities, uh, workers' compensation board liabilities, anything like that, you are going to be subject or exposed to those liabilities. So 
As a rule of thumb, you increase the complexity and exposure when you are buying shares. Now, if you're getting an advantage as a purchaser, the vendor is generally giving something up and whether it's a tax advantage or a liability advantage. So I just sort of think of it as a, a little bit of a seesaw. If, you, <laughs> if you're preparing, um, generally speaking, vendors like to sell shares and purchasers like to buy assets. Right. And then, you know, that's the starting point for the negotiations. I would say asset purchases are still much more common I haven't done any empirical research, but anecdotally, I would say 70% are assets and, and 30 are shares. Um, and then the third option is that combination of a hybrid asset share transaction. And the intent there is to try and get the best of both worlds for both parties. There are a number of restrictions and requirements that have to be met in order for that to occur. Um, you know, not to get into too much detail, there's uh, you have to strip certain assets out of right. the vendor company, and I mean that's more your world. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and again, so you can see the reliance on the tax accounting side, why it is so important to have that dialogue between the professional advisors, so that you're um, you're constructing the deal in the best interests of the of the client. Absolutely, you know, you, it's very interesting. You mentioned. Uh, you know some liabilities that comes with uh, b purchasing the shares of a company. You know, and and I want to you know kind of go over you know some of the liabilities or concerns that uh, you know you'd have from a, a legal perspective. But also, is there any concerns from a legal um, perspective when purchasing an assets? Is there anything to to pay attention to? Yeah, absolutely. Um so to, to simplify it as much as possible, you want to make sure that if you're paying for something, you're getting and obtaining what you're paying for. Right. And uh, it sounds very straightforward and simple, but it's not. And a lot of people would be very surprised to know how frequently someone tries to sell something that they don't actually own. Interesting. And, and, and it's nothing untoward, and it's not malicious and deliberate. But um, we have this concept in law called chain of title. And if I am selling something to somebody else, I have to own it. And you can understand a dentist might start out their career 20 years ago as a sole proprietor and they buy some equipment and then they incorporate and then they might change the ownership structure again somewhere along the, uh, along the way, gets to the point in their career and they're selling all their assets to a potential purchaser. Well, maybe one of the machines, the x-ray, the CEREC, was, was transferred on a handshake from the individual to the corporation, or it wasn't done at all. There's no documentation. That can cause issues. Um, or also, sometimes you'll, you'll lease a piece of equipment, or you'll be purchasing it on a finance term, and it's a $150,000 or $200,000 piece of equipment. You've only paid down $20,000. Um, well, the purchaser that's taking that over is going to be taking over the corresponding liability and what's owed. So you don't want to pay $200,000 for a piece of equipment that is only worth $20,000 because the balance hasn't been paid off. Um, and that's all our job. And, and that's a very standard aspect of what we do with respect to due diligence is do personal property registry searches, bank act searches, bankruptcy searches to ensure that assets are free and clear when the purchaser obtains them.
Wow, that's uh, you know absolutely. I mean, I didn't really think about uh, the, the asset, the risk of you know the the purchasing of assets. Now let's talk about the risk of purchasing shares, right? And, you know, that's obviously uh, the way I see it. It's a it's a bigger risk, right? Because there's a lot, you know you're buying everything in that corporation. Um, so one of the things that you know probably comes up you know a lot is the 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 staff they come in with a lot of a lot of years in that practice right now what is any of the liabilities that for example severance pay anything that the new owner is responsible for how does that work yeah so uh, another great and I'll, I'll touch on the asset side of things as well if you're just buying the assets you can cherry pick what you're purchasing right so the premises lease, the chairs, the x-rays, the autoclaves, whatever it is. And you can choose whether to take employees with you or not. If you're purchasing shares, as I mentioned, you're purchasing the entire company. And it's the company that has a contractual relationship with the employees. So, um, again, that's, as you're alluding to, is a risk or a liability at the very least. You're purchasing the corporation. It has contractual relationships and obligations with the employees. So as part of the due diligence in those situations, we want to obtain and review all of the employment contracts and relationships that are currently in place so that we know what those severance obligations are. If I purchase a, a, a shares in a dental corporation and take it over today, and there are individuals that have been working for the company for 10 years, I take on that 10-year severance obligation. Which leads me to another point about the importance of contracts and employment yeah, exactly. um, not a lot of offices actually you know have these contracts in places it is uh, so working with dentists and healthcare professionals is not all that I do I, I have a fairly broad client base and spectrum of who I deal with I would I would have to say again not empirical research but anecdotal research <laughs> the the number let's just say it's fairly uncommon for dental offices to have contracts for all their employees whether they're associates uh, hygienists receptionists for whatever reason I think it's just the velocity of the practice mm -hmm. and uh, everything else that's generally on a dentist plate the employment contracts tend to get left by the wayside and it's very common when I'm presented with a scenario a dental scenario transaction for there to be employees but no employment contracts um, so going back to what I was saying about analyzing contracts in a transaction so that you can know exposure, if you don't have employment contracts in place, uh, that can make things very challenging. It can make it difficult to determine what the actual liability and exposure is. And if you're a vendor and you don't have employment contracts in place, uh, the purchaser if they're savvy and if they have good legal counsel is going to ask to reduce the purchase price because there are contingent liabilities there that we can't identify so one of your original questions when should you start working with a lawyer you should work with them all the time right. and, and and I'm not talking about spending thousands of dollars a month I'm talking about throughout the the lifespan of your business continue to work with your advisors so that if employment contracts have expired or are no longer applicable, you get them in. If uh, your lease needs to be uh, reviewed or tweaked so that when you come to the point where you're packaging it up to sell, 
you're not scrambling around trying to to fix things and band-aid things it's uh it's one of those classic insurance scenarios pay a little bit ahead of time and it'll pay off dividends later on and, and these are very simple like you know an employee an employment contract is a very simple contract right yeah i mean in in you know it just doesn't require a lot of effort from the dentist side it just requires some initiative yeah exactly initiative and, and execution and some discipline to get it done Absolutely. and and it's not as simple as just putting one in place the week before you do your transaction depending on what terms are being imposed in the new contract you have to pay what we call in law consideration for that new contract or consideration for that employee agreeing to codify or write down that new contract and um, so quite often what we see is I'll work with my employment law people and say okay we're we're proposing to impose this contract on these employees so we can do this transaction they'll do an analysis of what the current contract says and compare that to what the previous contractual relationship looked like and we'll come up with an estimate and it could it quite often in the thousands of dollars to say you know you've got to give this person a bonus of two thousand or three thousand dollars as an incentive and consideration for them entering into this new contract to provide yourself with a level of comfort that it's going to be enforceable absolutely and and you know these things obviously you know as we discussed could be planned ahead of time right? yes yeah they all can <laughs> <laughs> no? so uh, you know in the spirit of talking about contracts let's talk about you know um, you know associate contracts also you know and you know a lot of dentists who are you know planning to build or purchase you know they, they they were working as associates right and now they're you know you know transitioning to becoming an owner and a lot of them have, you know, an uncompete clause or clauses that restrict mm -hmm. their ability to move. You know, let's touch base upon these contracts. Um, you know, how how do to navigate them? How how to understand them? I guess. Certainly. So, I would I would group a, an associate contract in sort of the same bucket as as a regular employment contract. I mean, the base of it, it sets out what the employee or associate is going to do for the office, what the expectations are and what the compensation is in return. Um, obviously there are certain differences between associate contracts and employment contracts and one you've alluded to are non-competition solicitation restrictions that are quite common. Um, notwithstanding they're common, they're negotiable and they are contextual. So, and we see this a lot in, in new associates in dental because obviously we have dental offices all over the province all over Canada but we only have a few dental schools so offices in municipal locations or rural locations quite often have to entice dentists to move and whenever there's inducements or you're asking people to change where they live move make investments those have implications on the employment relationship and what is determined to be reasonable or unreasonable in the context of uh, competition restrictions. On the face of it, and I should say I'm not an employment lawyer, I, but fortunately I have a wonderful group of employment law specialists here at the firm and I bend their ear all the time so it's, um, it's a great asset for me to have. So when you're looking at competition on the base of it, it's a restriction to work. And governments and courts don't generally like to restrict 
someone's ability to earn a living, but they will do so if it's reasonable in the circumstances. What is reasonable is case-specific. We look at spatial or geographical restrictions. We look at temporal time restrictions. So, you know, the most common ones you'll see are you can't compete for two years within five kilometers. But as you can appreciate, a five-kilometer radius in downtown Calgary is much different than a five-kilometer radius in Brooks or Hanna or um, Fort McLeod, um, much different catch basin of potential patients and employees. So are they enforceable? Yes, absolutely, but they have to be reasonable and they have to take into account um, you know, the situations surrounding, uh, surrounding them. And when I do associate contract reviews, that is, uh, that's one of the biggest areas that I focus time on because you can't just go in and say, well, two years is customary and five kilometers is customary. We need to look at uh, the surrounding circumstances to make sure that it actually is reasonable. And I hate when I have someone come in and they have an opportunity that they'd like to take advantage of and they have a non-compete or restriction on what they can do. It's, uh, it's a real bummer. Um, and, and it's worthwhile saying too, I just explained that non-competitions and restrictions have to be reasonable to be enforceable. Let's forget about enforceability for a while. If you've signed anything and you want to break it or change it, whether it's enforceable or not is going to make your life difficult. Right, right. And um, fighting for things is time-consuming. It's, uh, it's pressure on your mind, your life, and it's expensive. So it's better to know these things up front, try and negotiate. Uh, the best terms as possible and in doing so you actually whether most people might not even realize but just in spending time in negotiating reviewing learning you lower the likelihood that you're going to have an issue down the road because you understand better what the relationship is supposed to look like that's really well well put robert that's exactly you know the 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 what we want to educate you know uh dentist is to be proactive to look at these things and i think you know in a prior conversation we had is you know you i think you mentioned to me is the best contract is the contract you actually don't have to go back to <laughs> yeah yeah it is yeah it should it's like insurance <laughs> right. you know you don't take any satisfaction when they pay for your broken leg or your wreck car i'd rather not do it in the first place absolutely Robert, this was a really, really uh, very informative uh, episode. I really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks very much for the opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you for joining us today on Grow Your Dental Practice podcast. I'd like to thank our corporate partner, Zero, a beautiful accounting software. We use Zero for all our clients and they love it. If you'd like to know more information on myself or Shift Accounting, you can head directly to our website, shiftacct.com. You can visit the blog, sign up for our newsletter, or reach out to me directly at mohammed at shiftacct.com. Thank you.